All right, Gresham Bible Church, great to see everybody today. Good afternoon. We have an exciting church service today. We're going to hear from God in His Word. We're going to respond in worship through song and prayer and taking communion. And then later uh, this afternoon, early this evening, right, we're going to have some baptisms and can't wait for that celebration to hear what Jesus has done uh, in people's lives. So as we get started here, our text is going to be, if you want to start making your way there, Luke chapter 22. We're going to be starting in verse 63. Luke 22 63. And as you make your way there, we're nearing the end of our time in Luke, right? Which has been a great time as a church to be sitting under God's Word together in Luke, seeing who Jesus is and what He's done. So we're nearing our time together in Luke. And if you don't happen to have a Bible as well, before I forget, we have some Bibles there in the back. Feel free to step up and grab one. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, please take that as Gresham Bible Church's gift to you. So in our passage today, as you make your way there, again, Luke twenty-two sixty-three, 63, we are going to be confronted and we're going to see the reality of innocence and guilt. And I wonder this, what would you find most surprising? What would bring out the strongest reaction from you? Would it be a guilty person being set free Or would it be an innocent person being declared guilty, right? Someone innocent being set free or someone innocent being told, no, you're guilty. And as I've been thinking about our text, this idea we're going to see here in a moment, I've just been thinking about how many stories are based on this premise, right? Of the innocent person being falsely accused, even though they didn't commit a crime. You probably have certain movies or books coming into your mind right now. So like, remember the old great Harrison Ford movie, The Fugitive, right? He's falsely accused of a crime. Or Dan Stump's favorite movie, Shawshank Redemption, falsely accused of a crime. Or maybe even one of the greatest movie masterpieces in all-time classic, Captain America, The Winter Soldier, right? Captain America, falsely accused, and then the movie plays out from there. And again, how much of our, our culture's entertainment menu is honestly just built around the idea of the innocent being declared guilty, of falsely being accused. And this isn't a new phenomenon. When you think about it throughout human history, books and stories are built on this. This idea of the innocent being declared guilty, it seems to captivate the human heart. It's like a story underneath the stories written inside of all of us. We have a very strong sense of justice. This guy named Sir William Blackstone, whenever you have a sir in front of your name, you should pay attention, right? So Sir William Blackstone, an English judge back in the 1700s, once wrote this. It is better that ten guilty persons escape than the one innocent suffer. And in our passage today, we're going to see the most unjust, unjust trial in the history of the world. We're going to see a trial where innocence and guilt trade places. So before we begin, I'm going to pray for us, then we're going to get started in Luke chapter 22, verse 63. So please agree with me in prayer. Father God, we need you today. We praise you for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. We need to hear today from you through your word. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to treasure wonderful things today from your word. 
Fix our attention and our affections and on the goodness and glory of Jesus. Lift our eyes from ourselves and our present troubles to you and your eternal purposes and promises. Father, grow the roots of our lives more securely down into the grace and truth of the gospel. Give us hearts to confess, repent, and believe. Open your word to us and open us to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So, all right, there should be... uh, a slide on the screen that's going to show you where we're going today. Three different movements in our text. First is identity. That's in Luke twenty-two sixty-three through the end of chapter 22. Then we're going to see innocence. That's in chapter 23, verses 1 through 17. And then lastly, we're going to see indictment. And that's as verses 18 through 25 in chapter 23. So first, follow along with me. Put your finger on the text in front of you and follow along as I read Luke twenty-two sixty-three through 71. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is that that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came... The assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his lips. So for context, remember last week, what brings us to our text today is we saw the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus. Now Jesus is waiting to be brought on trial. And as he's waiting to be brought on trial, these religious guards mock Jesus and beat him. And notice what they're mocking him and beating him for. It's because of his identity, right? They're turning it on itself and say, hey, if you really are who you say you are and you know all things, you're going to be able to tell us who's hitting you right now. And so they beat Jesus and mock him. As Jesus waits to be brought on trial, again, we see Jesus here. He's alone and afflicted. He's beaten and bruised and bleeding. Then look at verse 66. We come out of this night of being alone and afflicted when day came. So now Jesus is brought before the council for trial. The day of Jesus' trial begins. And this council that Jesus is brought before, it demands that Jesus tell them if he is the Christ or not. Right? You might hear that and think, what does that mean? It really means this council is saying, Jesus, are you the anointed one? Are you the promised Messiah? So again, Jesus is on trial because of his identity of who he's claiming to be. That's the whole reason he's here on trial. This council is consumed, really, this group of religious leaders we've seen throughout Luke, they're consumed with determining once and for all who Jesus is. They want to catch Jesus and nail him to the wall. And then look at the text in front of you. What's Jesus' response to their question? Jesus says, If I tell you, you will not believe, And if I ask you, you will not answer. So not only did Jesus know 
each guard that hit him a few verses ago, right? Jesus knew that even though he didn't respond. Jesus is saying here on trial that he knows all things, even what would happen. Jesus is saying here there's no reality in which he is not the all-knowing God. He's, he's answering, if I told you this, you would do this. That's how all-encompassing the sovereignty of Jesus is. Then Jesus ramps it up. Just in case the council isn't clear what he's saying, look at verse 69. It's like Jesus is saying here, you really want to know my identity. You really want to know who I am. What does Jesus say? But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So on trial, Jesus identifies himself here as the Son of Man. By Jesus telling this council, he is the Son of Man, he is saying, I am fully God and I am fully man. So these religious leaders, did they know their Old Testaments? They knew it really well, right? So they know what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying, this is exactly what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'm the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, where Daniel 7, 14 says this about the Son of Man. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So picture the scene. Jesus is on trial. He says, I'm the son of man. He's identifying himself as the fulfillment of the prophecy of Daniel 7:14 to this religious council. Jesus is saying, Daniel 7 is about me. So Jesus on trial brings evidence against himself of who he is. And his evidence is the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 7. And if the council had any reasonable doubt right now, again, Jesus is testifying to his own identity. You wanted to know who I am? Here's who I am. Daniel chapter 7, the son of man. So to these religious authorities who've put Jesus on trial, Jesus is saying here that he really is the one who has all authority over them who are putting him on trial, even though right now in this moment, maybe it doesn't look that way. Okay, so could you kind of catching the scene here of the trial that we're seeing at the end of Luke 22. This is really the most dramatic and important and meaningful courtroom scene in the history of the world. I don't care how many episodes of Law and Order you saw or Matlock. None of it compares, right? God, the Son of God, is on trial here. Okay, that, that's our scene here in Luke 22. And then what does the council do? The, the prosecuting attorney, the council, they've had enough. Look at verse 70. So they all said, not just one of them, they all said, right, in unison, they all said to Jesus, are you the Son of God then? They know what Jesus is putting down, and they're picking it up. Though beaten and bruised, Jesus says, you say that I am. Wow. In this setting, Jesus says, you say that I am the Son of God. So when the identity of Jesus is put on trial, Jesus is found guilty. What's he found guilty of? What did they charge him of? Of being the Christ, right? And of being the Son of God. Guilty on both counts. So let the reality of this sink in because it should really give us pause, right? 
Jesus is saying here on trial, I am the Messiah, I'm the Son of God. Like, how does that strike our modern ear and in our cultural moment, right? Doesn't the identity of Jesus in our day and age and just here in East County, doesn't it just seem like another data point? People don't really care. It seems kind of irrelevant. You can dismiss Jesus. You can even mock him. Like, he's not that important. But our text is confronting with us how important Jesus is. But in our cultural moment, in our time and place, it seems like people kind of even put up with Jesus just as long as you kind of keep Jesus safe, right? Just as we have a tame Jesus. We don't want a Jesus that's true, right, that confronts us. We're okay with Jesus if he's made into our image. But our text shows us that's not consistent with who the real Jesus is here on trial. So our text, again, it graciously, God's word graciously confronts us here with our own unbelief and our culture's view of Jesus. Either Jesus is who he said he is or not. There's no in-between if you're being really honest. So we need to make a decision about Jesus that's based on his own testimony, right? If you were on the jury here and Jesus is on trial and you were in the jury room deliberating, wouldn't you want your decision to be, hey, what does the evidence say? Well, the evidence here that Jesus is using to testify against himself is that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Son of God, that he's fully man and fully God. So if we want to see Jesus as he really is, we need to come to the real Jesus on his terms because we have God's word on it here in Luke 22. Now, if Jesus really is who he said he is here, he's on trial, if that's true, well, it only changes everything. And that's what we're going to see as we go into chapter 23. So this brings us to our second point, innocent. Look with me and follow along in Luke 23, verses 1 through 17. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to, hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I, do not find, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, 
Nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. So after the Jewish trial, right, this entourage brings Jesus to Pilate, the Roman ruler in the area. And they do this because of what they want. What do they want? They want Jesus dead, right? They want to permanently not just sideline Jesus, they want to silence him. So in order to do that in their day and age, they didn't have the power to kill someone. So they bring up these charges on Jesus because they want him dead. So this is the trial. There's these different scenes that are happening in the trial of Jesus. And again, we have to remember, this is all being done in front of everybody, in front of the public. This isn't some backroom type deal. Oh, that's open to interpretation and what happened. This was done in front of many, many people, okay? This is a matter of historical record. Notice verse 2. What do they do to Jesus? They bring three charges against him, right? Three political charges so that they get Pilate's attention. And then Pilate, he focuses on the third charge, the charge of who Jesus is, of his identity. Is Jesus a king? That's what Pilate focuses on. But then ultimately, as we just heard in God's word, Pilate says, I find no guilt in this man. Not meaning he isn't who he says he is, but meaning I don't find guilt that this person should die for what you're charging him for, okay? That's a corrupt ruler declaring Jesus is completely innocent. Pilate finds no guilt in him. Then what happens? Some of us in this room know this story, right? Pilate, being the classic politician, doesn't care about what's true. He cares about what's expedient and his own status and his own neck. And so when he hears, oh, you're from Galilee, He knows he can pass the buck, and he sends Jesus to Herod to see if Herod will make the tough decision about Jesus. And then look at Herod as the trial of Jesus continues. In verse 8, how does Herod view Jesus? I think it's so interesting. A king, we hear what his perception is of Jesus. How does Herod view Jesus? Our text tells us that Herod was very glad to see Jesus because why? Because he was hoping to see a sign, right? He wanted to be entertained by Jesus. He found Jesus interesting. He was intrigued by Jesus, right? Jesus was just another curiosity this king could be entertained by. So what does Herod do? He questions Jesus. The trial of Jesus continues. And then look in the background the whole time what the religious leaders are doing. They're in front of like royalty in this area, in this region, but it doesn't stop them. What does verse 10 say? They venomously continue to accuse Jesus. So the trial of Jesus, now before a different king, before Herod, it continues to be filled with accusations, with skepticism, with questions. And not to find what's true, but to make Jesus fit each of their own truths right? That's what's happening here with Jesus on trial. What happens with Herod? He has a brief attention span. You bore me. You don't entertain me. He's done with Jesus. He tires of Jesus. Jesus didn't scratch his itch. Jesus didn't tell him what he wanted to hear. Jesus didn't meet his expectations. So King Herod is done with Jesus. However, what does our text say? Even this twisted, corrupt ruler Herod found Jesus innocent, found Jesus guiltless, right? 
But Herod, true to his character and true to form, even though he's innocent, Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate, but how does he send him back? By mocking King Jesus. Jesus says he's a king, fine. So Herod puts him in splendid clothing and he sends Jesus back to Pilate. Next scene of our trial, right? So when we think about this, maybe to like our just ear as people or in our moment, can kind of feel like, wow, Jesus is the victim here. Like all of these things are being done to Jesus. And in some way they are, but it's easy to think Jesus is just a pawn to corrupt power, that he's just caught up in this political chess match between the religious leaders and Pilate and Herod, and Jesus is stuck in the middle, right? But that's not what God's word tells us about what's happening here in this scene in the trial of Jesus. It's really important that we see the trial of Jesus for what it is, and that it's purposeful, it's providential, that it's even planned. And I'm not just saying that. Acts 2, verse 23, says this. It says these corrupt kings are really pawns for the king of kings. Acts 2, 23 says this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This corrupt trial is all God's doing. The trial of Jesus is the definite and good plan of a sovereign and gracious king. So Jesus really is a king. He's just an entirely different kind of king. So to this point, again, we have to be really clear. What has Jesus been found guilty of? He's been found guilty of being the Messiah and of being the Son of God. But these corrupt Roman kings, these rulers, Pilate and Herod, found nothing that he was guilty of deserving death. These corrupt kings say he's completely innocent. Yet Jesus remains on trial, right? Why is this? What's happening here? What does verse 15 say? Pilate, the politician, gathers all the priests, the rulers, and the people, and he once again, once again declares, I don't find anything guilty in Jesus. Pilate says, Jesus has done nothing deserving death, right? Yet even though Jesus has been declared innocent by Pilate and Herod multiple times, he still remains on trial. And in order to appease the crowd, Pilate says he's going to punish Jesus and release him. And by punish Jesus, this is what he means. He means he's going to flog Jesus with a whip with implements put into it, probably metal, to make Jesus bleed. Okay? He's already been beaten and bruised and mocked. Now, Pilate's hoping that just a little more innocent blood of Jesus, who he said is innocent, but he said just a little more innocent blood displayed through whipping is going to satisfy the people, is going to satisfy the crowd about Jesus. So isn't, I mean, it's just clear, something unusual is happening here in this trial of Jesus, isn't it? Two corrupt kings find Jesus innocent of anything deserving death, and yet here he is still on trial. What will the verdict be? Will Jesus be indicted for being the Son of God and Christ the King? Okay, and that brings us to the third movement in our text. That's chapter 23, verses 18 through 25. Follow along with me. But they all cried together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas. 
a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Just so we don't miss it, look at verse 22 again. Pilate says again, Jesus is innocent. And Pilate tries one more time to avoid sending Jesus to be crucified. Pilate says to this crowd of people that he's gathered, he says, why, what evil has Jesus done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. But we all know the story. The crowds insist that Jesus be crucified, right? The trial is moving to a verdict. Only Jesus' death is going to satisfy them, right? Not just any death, but a particular type of death. They're saying crucify him. They want innocent Jesus to suffer the public death of a criminal on a cross. So innocent Jesus is going to be killed because what has he been found guilty of? Of being the Son of God and Christ the King. The trial of Jesus here, it ends with an indictment. Jesus is sent to be crucified, to suffer the death of the guilty, even though he's been found guiltless. Let's not miss what's happening here, right? Again, it's not by accident Jesus is on his way to the cross here. What's sending Jesus to the cross is his identity and his innocence. It's who Jesus is that is sending him to the cross. One commentator commentator said it like this, Fallen Jews, Gentiles, and spiritual powers unwittingly collaborate in executing the only innocent death that could possibly grant the guilty life. Wow, that's what the trial of Jesus is really about. The greatest injustice in the history of the universe, and that's not hyperbole, the greatest injustice in the history of the universe God is going to use for the greatest good. That's what's happening here with the trial of Jesus. So as we move to a close, this is um, a glorious, weighty reality in text. Some of us maybe are too familiar with it. So I want us to really feel and hear the truth about what God's word is showing us here. Doesn't the trial of Jesus, when you really think about it, doesn't it put each of us in this room on trial? Right? It puts all of us on trial as we're reading about the trial of Jesus. And when you think about it, each of us is really involved too. Remember the crowds again back in verse 18? What did they do? Right? Who'd they cry out for? They cried out for a murderer and an insurrectionist to be released rather than Jesus. They, for this guy Barabbas to be released. And while we never hear, which is so interesting, you never hear of Barabbas again in Scripture, in a very real sense, Barabbas is the story that explains Jesus. Barabbas is the story that explains and highlights the identity of Jesus and the innocence of Jesus. 
those of us who know what Jesus accomplished as he's being sent to be crucified, what Jesus did on the cross, realize that Barabbas' story is our story. And that's because Jesus takes our place, right? The guiltless for the guilty. Innocent Jesus here. The guiltless Jesus becomes guilty so that the guilty can be made innocent and free. That's the story that's happening here in the trial of Jesus. And if you're, if you're tracking with me here, if you're hearing me be like, yeah, Mike, that seems like a reach. I'm not Barabbas. I haven't been thrown in prison, right, for murdering anybody. I haven't been thrown in prison for causing an insurrection. And hey, praise God that most of you, I think, looking around this room, haven't been. That's great, great, right? But when we see what God's word is really telling us here, we really are like Barabbas, right? And the way that we are is spiritually in our heart, Each of us, every one of us in this room and within the sound of my voice, commits spiritual insurrection and murder when we deny the identity and innocence of Jesus. We're more like Barabbas than what we want to believe. That's what the trial of Jesus is showing us. That's because each of us sent Jesus to the cross because of our sin. Okay? But the good news, right, is the innocence of Jesus matters. The innocence of Jesus here, that these corrupt kings even said, hey, he's guiltless. The innocence of Jesus matters because it gives us hope. And, and here's what I mean by that. As I've been reflecting on the innocence of Jesus, here's how it lands on us. Here's how it's even practical. So each of us, if we're being really honest, don't we put Jesus on trial in our hearts? We accuse Jesus of certain things we hold something against Jesus. Functionally and practically, in our heart of hearts, we believe and act like Jesus really isn't completely guiltless, like Jesus isn't innocent. And so because of that, that gives us the justification not to fully trust and obey Jesus because we find him guilty of something. So here's what that can mean. Maybe like for you in your life, Um, Maybe you have certain disappointments that you hold against Jesus. Maybe your life hasn't gone the way that really you wanted it to, right? And you've suffered in different ways, whether it be relationally, even in your career, things have hurt you, right? So you hold that against Jesus. You don't find him completely innocent, and you think that Jesus isn't good or trustworthy because of what's happened in your life. Or maybe for you, You put Jesus on trial and you don't find him completely innocent just because if we're being totally honest in this room, maybe someone who's really close to you has gotten sick or suffered or died. And you think, how can Jesus be good? How can Jesus be innocent if this happens? And then you fill in the blank, right? So you're putting Jesus on trial and you're not really believing he's fully innocent. So whatever that thing is, that each of us, if we're honest in our heart of hearts, accuse Jesus of, whatever that thing is, the posture of our unbelieving hearts is that we trust our own perceived kind of indictment of Jesus more than we trust the full innocence of Jesus. But the innocence of Jesus, if he's fully innocent, guiltless, the innocence of Jesus means there's nothing you can truthfully accuse him of. None of those things can stick to Jesus. Whatever you've held against Jesus, he's not guilty of it. Jesus is innocent, fully innocent because of who he is, because of his identity. That's been crystal clear as Jesus has been put on trial here, right? 
So whatever thing, and only you know in the quietness of your heart right now, whatever thing you've been holding against God to justify not believing in Jesus, it just isn't true. It just isn't true. It doesn't make Jesus guilty. Jesus is good and loving and trustworthy. He's proven it for all time through the cross and the empty tomb, right? That's where we're going in this text. Jesus found guilty of, he's going to die. The guiltless for the guilty. And maybe if you're here today, if you're not a Christian, first, Gresham Bible Church is really glad you're here. I would hope you would consider what we're hearing about who Jesus is. And if you're being honest in hearing this and you've been skeptical about Jesus, I would just ask you to be honest in view of the innocence of Jesus and be skeptical of your skepticism about Jesus. Jesus is fully innocent. He's guiltless. So whatever the purpose is of the suffering or the thing in your life that you've been holding against Jesus, it can't be that God isn't good and that God isn't gracious and that God isn't in control. He's proven that for all time through the person and work of Jesus Christ. The innocence of Jesus, it only proves the depth of our guilt and our sin. And the innocence of Jesus only proves God's grace is deeper still. That's what's happening in the trial of Jesus. So as we close, pastor and author Tim Keller put it like this. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Let me close this in prayer. Father, we praise you for your goodness and your greatness, for your graciousness and your glory. We praise you for Jesus. We praise you for the cross that you took our place and took the punishment and the penalty of sin that each of us rightly deserve. And instead, you gave us your life and life everlasting. We praise you for your amazing grace. We ask all this in Jesus' name.